And I just didn't see a way out of it. And, and the only way out of it at the time for me was, all right, I'm going to go find other deals, start assigning them, start flipping multifamily. Cause that's what I know. Well, I know how to do that. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Mortensen. Today's guest is Axel Regnarsson, who is a commercial real estate investor based in New Hampshire, who has a ton of uh, real estate experience investing in multifamily real estate. Axel, welcome, and thank you for being on today. Awesome, Corey. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk about how you got started, what you're doing now, what your views are on the market. But why don't you start with introducing yourself to the listeners about your background and what, you, what you're what you working on now? Yeah, for sure. So um, I got into real estate um, late, you know, kind of tail into college. Uh, this is, and then from a timeline standpoint, uh, that was around the 2016 uh, mark. And before I got into real estate, I was, you know, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. So I was always, you know, trying to figure out a way to make a dollar that wasn't, you know, uh, checking into a job. So I was, I always like to joke, I've, I've like never been employable. I don't know. I've, I've never had a job for more than a couple of days. Um, so I remember back um, uh, late high school, early college, I was actually buying and selling cars. Uh, and that was like my little side business, right? So find good deals on Craigslist, you know, buy a 20, you know, 2005 Toyota Camry for five grand solid for 75. And, and that was my business, right? It was just kind of making some money doing that. Um, so eventually I realized that's not a permanent solution and I have to figure out what to do after school ends and uh, started trying to figure out, you know, businesses to start, um, started thinking about uh, maybe getting into real estate. Cause I'd heard other people, you know, talk about flipping houses and I saw it on HGTV and, you know, I probably got served up an Instagram ad here and there from a guru. And, um, and I was like, Oh, that, you know, that seems like a cool strategy. Uh, it's just flipping cars, but with bigger numbers. So I started learning about how to flip houses. But as I started learning about that, um, you know, listening to the bigger pockets show and all these other podcasts, I realized that, um, one, it was a lot of work and two, it was, it was very risky. Um, and it was very easy to just lose your shirt, right? If you didn't have construction experience, if you didn't find a really good deal, if you use the wrong debt, and so I started souring on that, but, but as I was learning more about real estate, I found rental real estate, multifamily real estate, and that strategy really spoke to me. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, if you find a good deal and you fix it up, um, you know, and you get your money out and you hold it forever, uh, and this thing will pay you forever. That's a pretty good deal, right? It was the whole, you know, Burr model, right? As soon as that was becoming popularized as a, as a term in the business, that's, that's really when I was getting into real estate. So started figuring out how to go find small multifamily properties uh, that I could buy at a discount, you know, started trying to figure out who, who was going to give me the money to do that. Um, and basically uh, started buying small, you know, three to 10 unit multifamily properties, uh, tail into college, you know, first few years out of college and built myself a portfolio uh, really financed through private money. And, um, and it was just leveraging that strategy, buying really good deals, direct to seller, uh, you know, using a lot of debt to buy them. And then uh, refinancing out the lender and just holding on to it long term. And I, you know, flip some, sell some. Uh, and it was really just figuring out the best way to make a buck at the time with the, with the good deals I was finding. Um, and then I kind of hit a wall, right? At some point, you're like, all right, we can only do so many three, six, 10 unit deals. I want to do something bigger and better. So I started looking at larger deals. And then I was introduced to the uh, concept of syndication and raising capital from investors um, also started looking at a state, you know, this is around the 2019, 2020 timeframe. So about three years ago, 
Um, and we started doing some deals in central Florida, uh, in the Lakeland area. So between Tampa and Orlando, we started doing bigger deals locally in New Hampshire. Um, and at the time I had moved to Boston, I still live in Boston. Um, but you know, our North of New Hampshire, we were still doing deals up there. Uh, and then just started growing a portfolio using, uh, some other people's money, right. Instead of just debt, we were raising equity. So in the last few years, we've done a couple hundred units in New Hampshire. Uh, we've done about 150 to 200 units in Florida. And uh, we built a property management company in New Hampshire. And um, and really, the entire business has been built around the fundamental thesis of find really good deals. We are not competing with other people to buy them. Um, structure them in a way that you know benefits you and benefits the investors or the lenders who are participating in the deal. And then just operate them really well. Um, and you know, if you make if, if there's an opportunity to sell and repurpose that cash and do something better with it, take that opportunity. So, and that's that's really what I've done over the last seven years. And and that's really what our business is now is looking for these uh, mid-sized deals, you know, thirty to eighty unit deals throughout New Hampshire and then throughout Central Florida. That's awesome. That's super impressive. Everything that you've done. How many units would you say that you have in total under management? Yeah, so we've actually been selling um, a lot of real estate over the last 12 months. We've probably sold, I don't know, 150 units in the last 12 months. Um, but so right now we're, we're around 250, you know, 300, depending on where we're at with a, with a sale here and there or an acquisition here and there. Um, but we're actually closing on uh, 68 units in the end of at the end of June here. So we'll be back up into the low 300s. But, you know, kind of hovers around that, you know, it's been hovering around that number as we've been uh, you know, we, again, we're not allergic to selling real estate. We'll, we'll do it if, the, if it makes sense. So we've actually sold a big chunk of our portfolio and that's kind of where we're sitting now. Gotcha. And so with the, the title of the podcast being mastering commercial real estate, what is something that you feel that you may have mastered or is your strength? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I have mastered, I mean, I've mastered just finding deals, I think. Um, I mean, no one can really master that. That's a, that's a lifelong pursuit in terms of getting better and better and and that's, and, you know, the longer you spend in this business and the more time you spend in this business, the better you get at that. But um, in terms of finding small to mid-sized deals, which I define as five to 50 unit multifamily deals, maybe five to 75, depending on the market, um, you can have a lot of success going direct to seller or by just doing things that is not waiting for the broker to call you up and to tell you, Hey, I got this deal, right? That's not how we do deals. That's not how we find deals. I mean, we've done probably 90 to you know, 95% of our deals out of the 40 deals we've done. I mean, I can maybe count three or four on one hand um, that we've done that a broker involved. I mean, that's just not what we do. We, we, we do a lot of cold calling. We do a lot of mailing. We do a lot of cold emailing and we have an entire system in a pipeline. I have somebody full-time in our business that helps with this now, whose name is Justin. And <clears throat> excuse me, we, uh, it's a whole vertical in our business is just getting in front of sellers and making offers and building the pipeline. Uh, and that's allowed us to grow a little bit more predictably. That's allowed us to buy better deals. That's allowed us to, um, you know, one to just build a more predictable business from like a deal flow standpoint. And, uh, you know, we just kind of had a realization where it was like, where I remember one time a broker sent me a deal. I think this was like, uh, you know, mid 2022 or actually no, it was mid 2021. And I was like, this is like the 70th deal I've seen from a broker in the last few months that isn't even remotely in the ballpark of our buy box. Um, and you know, we just kind of had this moment where it's just like, we we're we're really good at this direct to seller stuff. We keep trying to build our broke relationships, but like, we just don't understand the value. We, we don't understand the value at times because we are just never seeing deals through brokers. So we just went all in on the direct to seller stuff and our business continued to explode as a result of doing that. Um, 
and there's all kind of nuance here, right? If you're going to be doing a hundred plus unit, you know, deals, and that's primarily where you're focusing, brokers are going to be the ones that are trading those deals. And you're very rarely going to deal, excuse me, to do a deal direct to seller once you get into, you know, $10 million plus in deal size, but between one and 10, you can still do a lot of stuff direct to seller. And I would say that's really where our, you know, our core strength is. And that's in, would you say that that's because you're not dealing with a lot of institutional money, large corporate backed equity partner, whatever it is, it's that more homegrown mom and pop market. Is that why you pay attention to those smaller unit counts? Cause so many people want to go for the largest possible deals. A lot of times, you know, hundred units plus 200 units or even more. Why are you sticking with the smaller ones? Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's a really good question. I mean, we would love to exclusively do large deals. We just aren't at the stage of our business growth where we can do that because realistically speaking, uh, we're a little too conservative. Like I, I honestly think that we underwrite ourselves out of so many deals. Um, I mean, you know, and I, everyone can look back a couple of years and say, Oh, if only I had bought this deal, I would have made that, you know, of course that's not a helpful exercise, but, but even, I mean, like we were underwriting ourselves out of deals in terms of people were buying property and they were still making oodles of money. And I remember at the time saying like, I feel like I'm underwriting myself out of the contention on this, on this opportunity. Um, but for me, it's all about building a long-term sustainable business, not something that is just growing for the sake of growing. So we could have done way more deals. Right. And this is also too, because I wasn't really willing to raise investor capital for the longest period of time. So I was just capping my own growth. But, um, you know, I think that to, the direct answer to your question, uh, because I'm kind of getting around it here is once you start getting into that $10 million plus deal size, you're dealing with um, individuals that have a really low cost of capital. They might be raising from maybe a family office, maybe they're institutional. If you're getting into that 30 to $50 million plus deal size, um, you know, maybe they're raising from a select few really high net worth investors that have a real long-term horizon that don't have a high IRR requirement. They're okay with a more... Uh, you know, competitive deal structure in favor of the sponsor or something along those lines. And we just didn't have access to that type of money. Um, and quite frankly, we were just like, we, we weren't comfortable underwriting to like exact decimal point returns. Right. And it's funny because I think about this business, there's almost, and I loosely define folks um, in two ways that are in this business. You get like the Excel analytical you know, we got to get the, if we get debt at 5.5%, this deal works. If we get it at 575, it doesn't work because our IRR goes from 16 to 15 and a half. And like that's, there's one bucket of folks that are doing deals there. They're primarily doing deals through brokers. There, there's, there's more execution risk in there in those deals because they're underwriting closer to what the property needs to perform at to meet those returns. And there's just a lot of those people, right? So those people typically win deals because they're underwriting to the, to the 10th of a decimal point. Whereas on the other side of the house, you get a bunch of dudes that are just sales guys and marketing guys and just trying to go out there and gunsling and get deals under contract with meaty spreads. And, you know, they do, they do the mail, they're calling, and that's kind of where I fall, right? And in terms of how I define myself and like, you know, 16, 17, 18, I don't really care. I want to get all my money out in a couple of years, right? Which, you know, and the, in, on the Excel sheet for the first investor, that's 20, 30, 50% IRRs, whatever it is. Right. Um, so for me, I only really wanted to find those deals. So I just, you know, you can't compete with the guys on the other side of the table. Oftentimes in order to find the deals I want to find, we have to be extraordinarily intentional about getting in front of sellers because once a broker takes a deal at any, any reasonable broker, you know, someone who's got a decent list, they got, you know, they, they, they're not underwriting the property wrong. They're not mispricing the property. It gets taken out. It gets bid up. It gets traded at market value. That's just how it works. Right. So we, we have to get to the seller before that happens. And in terms of what our investing goals are right now, 
Um, we just want to buy deals with massive spreads so we can't compete at that higher level. You know, and maybe our business changes. We, you know, and we, we grow into becoming the guys on the first side, but we have a low cost of capital. We have an abundance of investors. We're okay. You know, our investors are okay with earning 13 to 15 IRRs versus 20 to 22 IRRs or whatever it is. And, um, and we're okay making a little bit less as the sponsor in terms of like, we have a smaller percentage of the general partnership, but we do a really big $15 million deal and we make more money as a result. Our investors are okay with it. And then we enter that realm, but you know, we kind of just haven't made that leap yet. So that's a good segue talking about investors into investor expectation. Cause that's a conversation that I've been having with a lot of the guests is because the deal flow has tightened up quite a bit in the last 12 months and returns have really tightened up with cap rates, rental rents, not climbing as much as people and brokers thought they were going to, or what they were underwriting on pro formas. Are you having conversations with investors to say, Hey, we just can't get those types of returns anymore. We need to be looking at a lower return structure as opposed to the past, or are you keeping those the same and just keeping being very patient with your deal flow? Yeah. You know, a, a lot of investors right now, um, say they want to invest, they express interest. No, we you know, we want to stay active. We want to stay active. But when the deal hits their inbox, they're just not ready to pull the trigger because they'll find a reason not to. Right. So I think there's a lot of investors that are lying to themselves about their willingness to participate in the real estate game right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really hard to get those people off the fence um, in terms of even just deciding to invest regardless of what the deal looks like. Um, because they're going to poke holes in whatever it is, because there's fear dictating those decisions. But in terms of the logical investor, right? Um, you know, we're raising capital for a deal right now that we're doing, and you know, I can talk about it because it's a 506C, and so I can, you know, broadly discuss it. We're raising 2.2 million dollars. We thought we were going to have a really hard time raising that capital um, because a lot of the investors that we spoke with before we launched the deal officially were, you know, they were saying. Yeah, they're just a little bit nervous about, uh, you know, where the market's going. They're, you know, they see every single headline hitting the Wall Street Journal and hitting, you know, real deal and all this stuff hitting Forbes. Investors are getting hosed. You know, they see all this news about floating rate debt and syndicators losing their properties. And there's just a lot of fear. But we were actually able to raise the capital in this deal extremely easily because the profile of the deal, I think, fits what investors are looking for right now. It doesn't have like some insane returns. I think any savvy investor, they're not making decisions based on the IRR for the deal. Like that's a component, but that's just a projection. It doesn't, you know, you got one deal at 16, another at 18, another at 20. That doesn't mean that the deal at 20 is the best. There's all kinds of nuance behind the scenes on that. Uh, I find that investors are a little bit more interested right now into getting deals that are conservatively underwritten, where there's a very simplistic business plan with a proven team. Uh, and that's financed with conservative leverage. You know, I think if you're check checking those boxes, you, you'll still be able to raise capital because you have an incredibly compelling story when an, an investor says, how can this go wrong, right? Um, and, and their downside risk is very protected. So you know, we're looking for deals as active investors that don't have some heavy value add plan attached to it where we're going to be doing tons of common area renovations and we're spending 20 grand a unit and we're installing amenities and we're doing all of this stuff um, or deals that we got to buy with bridge debt or deals that are in like a rough area where we're kind of unsure about the quality of tenant once we're done. And so we're doing the inverse. We're looking for deals that are well-located with light value adds that, you know, don't have a lot of complexity, minimal execution risk, three to 7,500 bucks, you know, per unit in renos. Maybe we'll get up to 10 grand a unit if it's like all interior and we're not doing anything on the exterior. Um, you know, deals where we can just improve the management quality, 
deals in specific submarkets that we're like we own other properties in and we like have plenty of experience. Um, I'm not working with any new partners right now. Like I don't want to I don't want to partner, you know, with somebody new right now unless the deal is a grand slam and I have some control mechanism in there to really be responsible for the success of that deal. Um, because again, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to initiate a partnership on the fly while the market's adjusting. And then we just need to buy everything with, you know, fixed rate debt of at least five years. Uh, ideally with some minimal prepayment penalties so that we can get out of it if we'd like, but that's how we're thinking about the business. And I think if you check those boxes, you have a good story to tell investors and it's less so about the IRR and the specific metrics of the deal. Like, yeah, an investor is probably not going to invest if there's like a seven and a half or 10% IRR, like you still have to get to those numbers. But if you can get there in such a way that allows you to still conservatively underwrite the deal and to not use a ton of leverage to get there, you got a really good story to tell. And I still think there's a lot of investors right now that want to place capital. Um, there's all kinds of discourse out there around like, you know, values are going to tank, values are going to, I don't, maybe, like, obviously I don't have a crystal ball, but like, it's hard to imagine that because we filled up this deal. It was a $2.2 million raise, biggest raise we've ever done. We filled it in, you know, two weeks. Um we got a lot of folks that are that are very enthusiastic about investing in this deal. And there's a lot of investors that are just sitting on money, you know, and that have a significant amount of dry powder. I think oftentimes the, you know, the meat-headed syndicators who use floating rate debt in like Texas, where property taxes assess every year and they bought C-class deals at low cap rates. Like, yeah, that's a segment of the marketplace, but that's not the entire marketplace. Like it, in where we do business throughout the Northeast. There's just not a lot of floating rate debt that's used. You got a lot of local banks, a lot of local credit unions. There's minimal supply coming online. Property taxes don't reassess every year. Expenses haven't gone as crazy uh, as they have in Florida, Arizona, you know, uh, parts of Texas, the Gulf Coast. Um, so it's a little bit more predictable. So in our backyard, there's just there's really no distress. Like unless somebody just blatantly overpaid for a deal and ran it into the ground, which it's their fault. It's not the market's fault. So um, I think that there's some misconceptions out there. We haven't seen any cracks at all. Like we're properties are trading in Southern New Hampshire throughout the greater Boston area, what they were trading at in 21. Like there hasn't been any adjustment yet. Um, so I think all of this is very market dependent and uh, I probably went very long in that answer, but that, that's what we're seeing. And that's how we're thinking about that right now. No, that's great. And I really appreciate the insight on the deal that you're currently working on because that so many people have deals that they've done in the past or gone full cycle with. And we've talked about those, but not one that's currently being marketed, being closed on yet. So I really appreciate that. How did you find that deal? Yeah. So uh, my partner on that one, we bought 23 units from this seller uh, in December. So about six months ago, December of 22. And um, he connected with him through like a referral from like a residential agent. So we were direct to seller initially with that guy, bought his first 23 units uh, or the you know first 23 units he wanted to sell us. And then we just worked on on buying this one that whole time, just ready to sell, you ready to sell, you ready to sell. And over, you know, four or five, six month period of time, warmed down and uh, struck a deal and put it under contract, you know, so it's from somebody that we've already bought from. But again, no broker involved. They didn't bring a broker in. You know, it was just us and the seller working them down over time. And the pricing that we're getting is a massive reflection of that. Like we're we're paying far less than this property is worth. Um, but he's an older gentleman. He's burnt out. It's the last one he owns. You know, he says he's going to sell it and get back in the real estate game. But he's, you know, he's not. He's probably going to retire and he's going to move on. He's, you know, in his 70s. It's, it's time to, you know, to call it quits most likely for him. Um, so, you know, we were just, we had, a, we had a good relationship with him and just kind of leaned on that. That's awesome. When you're doing your direct to seller campaigns, were you doing that full time? How were you splitting your time up in the early days 
of cold calling mailers? What did that look like? What, what templates were you, what were you saying your tone versus now? Let's start with the first, then we'll talk about what you're doing now, if that's changed. Yeah. So, I mean, the first three to five years, I shouldn't say three to five, really first three years in the business, call it 2017 to 2020, uh, pull the list off a list source, you know, grab the owner's contact information, skip trace it somehow, send him an email, send him some direct mail. And, um, that was it. Didn't even have a CRM. I was taking notes in a Google Sheets form, you know, had a list of 1500 properties and I would mail when I felt like I could afford sending some direct mail and I would email them when I had, I don't know, a few, you know, some, a few hours to kill at night watching TV. And that was really the entire game. I tried to pick up the phone when people called me and we did a lot of deals, right? I mean, that's, you know, we still did a good amount of deals. Granted, they were small properties I was pursuing. Those were, you know, it was three to six units was like the list size. Um, over time, it's evolved. You know, we brought in helps, uh, or excuse me, uh, virtual assistant help to help underwrite, to help uh, source data, to help send outbound emails to owners. Um, you know, we've 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 started getting better data because we've signed up as a as a subscriber to Reonomy. So we're you know we use Reonomy to find our commercial real estate data. Um, we send direct mail more consistently now. You know, we send it every other month. You know, we'll just do that to the list forever until someone tells us to take them off. Um, and you know, I have somebody full-time now who cold calls as well. He cold calls the list in addition to what all the other stuff we do. I, I did cold calling for a while, but only to a really targeted list of like the exact zip code that I wanted to be in the exact property type I wanted to buy. Um, and I, I just personally got burnt out because I just had way too much stuff going on. Like, um, at the time I was, you know, doing our asset management. I was trying to grow the podcast. I was trying to get active on social media trying to raise money and meet partners, you know? So for me, I just didn't have, I, I, I didn't have the discipline to carve out like a few hours a day to cold call. It just wasn't, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So I did it on a small list. Um, and I was having, you know, we were having success with direct email and, and mailing. So, you know, I wasn't really forced to, but now we have someone whose full-time focus is that in addition to taking inbound calls and doing some other stuff to build our pipeline, uh, which allows us to much more predictably get deals into the top of the funnel and at least start to, you know, start working them down. So when you first get a seller on on the phone, when you were doing your cold calling or what you have your VA is doing, what is kind of your template script? How do you get people to engage? Because obviously, you know, 99 out of 100 times, they're going to say, no, I'm not interested, not going to sell right now. What do you say then? And obviously, how do you keep them warm? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh it's interesting because um, I think it's easy to overcomplicate. You know, I think when our script is straightforward, you know, Hey, is this blank? You know? And then, um, you know, Hey, my name's X. I'm with this and we want to make you an offer at this property. Um, and it's just, uh, and then we, we, we just get to the point of the call as fast as we possibly can, because we don't want the other person on the other end of the line to hang up before we get our message out. Like, um, you know, Hey, this is Axel. Uh, I'm a, I'm a real estate investor in Southern New Hampshire. Saw you on the property. One, two, three main street. Uh, wanted to make you an offer on it. Do you have a second to chat? Uh, no. All right, cool. That's part of cold calling, right? You know, at some point the vast majority of people are just going to hang up and that's okay. But every once in a while, it's like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, what do you, what will you give me? Right. And that's usually the, the response. All right, well, well, what's your offer? And it's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to have to spend a few minutes on the phone with you to at least gather some very high level information before we can make you an offer. But, um, but Hey, I'll promise I'll make this worth your while. I'm not a, and that's when I do a little caveat, right? A little, little objection handler before they even have the objection. You know, hey, we're local investors. We're not wholesalers. We're not here to waste your time. We're not tire kickers. I promise if you spend a few minutes with us, it'll be worth your time. And hey, you'll have met somebody else in the market that's doing the same thing that you're doing, right? And that's kind of how we handle that. Um, and then you have to accept that it's volume that that just drives the results here. 
Um, and what's honestly funny is that the bigger the properties you're calling or the bigger, you know, the, the owners of the larger properties that might be on your list are more receptive to having these conversations because they're receiving less marketing communication versus like the poor lady who's just inherited her aunt's, you know, duplex or single family home. And she's getting absolutely decimated by calls from virtual assistants in South America and the Philippines and, you know, RVM drops and text messages. Cause she's showing up on everybody's list, you know, that does deals in that market. They're going to be the ones that are less interested in talking because they're, they're so burnt on all of this stuff. Anyways, that the larger the property typically get, the more receptive the other person is to selling the property, assuming that you are, you know, you can handle that quick objection right off the bat. Um, and that's why, you know, we tried to use some folks virtually to help call. Um, but we just realized like, Hey, that's just not a model that's going to work because they can't, they aren't able to speak the lingo, which is a little bit abstract. Like they don't really have that sense of someone who's in the game. Um, and, and that's kind of what we focus on is like, you know, Hey man, we're deal junkies like you are. We'd love to chat about your property, you know, and we, we get it all out as quickly as we can. And then, uh, and then we set a very clear expectation. Hey, three, five minutes, give me a rent roll. We'll get you a number. Um, and we can make offers too, without a lot of information. Like if you give us a rent roll in our target market, we'll make you an offer. Uh, cause we just know what all the expenses will be and, you know, T12s aren't going to matter. They're not going to dictate how we're going to operate into the future. And we know where we can take the rents and that's all we really need to make an offer. And we tell people that, and, and that typically breaks down the barriers a little bit because they know they don't have to spend that much time on the phone to get there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Just making it as easy as possible for everybody involved is going to get you so much further than, you know, kind of a chunky process. Okay, well, email me this, email me that. Just being able and showing that you're knowledgeable like that gets them to admit more on the phone with you and get more information and build that that relationship. And I've I've had that happen too when you were saying, you know, with larger properties versus the smaller ones because the smaller ones hung up all the time because I get calls all the time, all the time, all the time. And I'm like, I know, I know. I'm sorry, this may yeah. be this will be the last if we go through with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I think um, typically the disposition of someone that's, uh, that owns a big piece of real estate, and if they're on our list, you know, that means they've owned it for a number of years, like typically pretty happy folks. <laughs> they got a nice big property that they probably have a ton of equity in. You know, as, a, as an individual in terms of their day-to-day -day life, they probably don't have as much to complain about as someone who's on the other end of that spectrum, right? So in general, cold calling those folks is like a little bit less emotionally daunting because you're not getting screamed at as much, right? Of course, you're still going to get screamed at, right? That's the nature of cold calling, but it's a little bit less frequent. Right. And so you spoke a little bit about your team. What does your team look like now? How many people do you have working with you, under you, partners, et cetera? And what are their duties and what are you focused on? Yeah, so we we have um you know two folks that are full time in the U.S. We have a full time director of operations and a full time acquisitions manager. So you know I kind of just talked about our acquisitions manager, um, but our director of operations he, he really spearheads our asset management, our project management, and he kind of manages a lot of the stuff within the business within the Align Real Estate Partners business in terms of like we're raising money. He's helping to put together the docs. He's helping to coordinate transactions, all that stuff. And then he's on the phone, you know, every week with all of our PMs, making sure the properties are performing and holding all the PMs accountable. Um, and then we have two virtual assistants as well. So we have, you know, a VA that, that is kind of like my personal virtual assistant. And then we have another VA that supports both the acquisitions manager and our director of operations. So a lot of the more entry-level tasks, um, you know, date, data related work, anything that's, you know, kind of a project base that's easy to delegate. He, he supports those two. Um, 
And, you know, and then, then obviously my personal VA really helps me with like content creation and you know, some of the other stuff that I do on like the sales and marketing side, which is where I live. And my focus now in the business is, you know, capital content and connections. That's kind of how I describe it. Right. Um, so I'm out there, like I'll always be the, 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 the individual facing the investor, you know, getting on the introductory investor call, doing all the due diligence calls when somebody wants to evaluate whether or not, you know, a deal works for them. Um, all, all of those items connections. So I'm connecting with key players in our market that can help drive our business forward, you know, networking with the loan brokers, with the attorneys, with the, you know, these investors, those investors talking about the JV deals. Um, and then content, you know, I'm on the podcast, uh, you know, host the podcast. I try to, you know, guest on others, you know, for example, like yourselves and, uh, you know, produce content for LinkedIn and Instagram and just try and keep our business top of mind in the markets that we do deals in. Yeah. And you do a great job with your marketing. I follow you on, I think just about every social media and I love all the content. It's very, very valuable. And we'll, we'll put links to everything for, for you guys, the listeners to go and check them out. Cause it's, it's great information. It's very simple, easy, Appreciate direct, that. clean. Yeah. I really, I really love it. And it's a great, great resource for everybody looking to learn more about real estate in addition to uh, the mastering commercial real estate podcast. But um, of course, <laughs> so in terms of what your goals are for the rest of the year, this recording's taking place May 24th, 2023. What are your goals through the rest of the year? What are you focused on with your business and, and you personally? Oh, it's a good question. I, um, you know, we had all kinds of goals when we went into this year and um, we're going to fall short, right? Because the market does not, did not agree with them, which is okay. You know, I think originally our goals for this year, we wanted to buy 300 units of class C, 200 units of class B um, in our target markets. Um, we're going to have done 68 units of class B by the June. So halfway through the year, basically, and we're going to be, I don't know, 20% of the way in terms of completing that goal, a little bit less. Um, and that was based on the fact that we did about 200 units last year. So it was ambitious for sure. But we always knew that, hey, that if the market adjusts, we're not going to be, able, you know, you can't fight the market in terms of like acquisitions. You have to take what it gives you. You can't just force deals to meet your goals. So we pivoted this year um, from like more uh, portfolio growth related goals. And we've created a lot of goals around operations. Um, so for the rest of this year, our, our goal is to absolutely maximize, which, you know, in terms of like some kind of metric, I, I don't necessarily have them, but really to maximize the efficiency of the operational side of our business so that when we do buy deals, we are working through the business plan in the in an extraordinarily efficient way. And then we are asset managing very well into the future. Um, we'd like to start a construction company. We're kind of working through that right now up in up in New Hampshire to to work on our own properties. So we want to hire, you know, a project manager, seven to 10 individuals that can actually execute our work. Um, It'll help us underwrite deals because instead of spending 15 grand on a unit, maybe we can spend 11, 12 grand on a unit and we can just, you know, maybe get some deals closer to penciling out as a result. And, um, and then I've, you know, started dipping my toe into the education world a little bit. Um, you know, I, I never envisioned myself being like the course guy for like multifamily real estate. And I don't plan on that being my business, but, um, but it, over the last few years of hosting the podcast and being really active on Instagram, I've been asked, you know, God knows how many times. Hey, do you have any content? Do you have any paid content? Do you do mentorship coaching? And I don't do I don't do coaching or mentorship. I'm not really interested in that. But like I spent some time creating some video content for a couple of courses that I see being extraordinarily valuable to to folks that want to get into multifamily real estate and then scale through finding their own deals. And my goal is, hey, you got a lot of value from me. You start finding deals. Let's partner on them. Let's start doing deals together. That's like my end game with doing that. So trying to build that side of the business out. 
um, and then spending more time on the marketing side. So from a goal standpoint, like, you know, everyone cares about unit count. You know, I think if we did 150 to 200 units throughout the remainder of this year, I'd be very pleased. I think if we got our construction company off the ground in terms of we had a great individual leading that business with a with two crews underneath that individual executing all of our renos and maybe doing some third-party work and that starts to uh, to become a standalone business, that would be great. Um, and then thirdly, um, you know, we'd like to have uh, a couple of pillar courses that really teach folks how to correctly get into this business without charging like thousands of dollars on coaching or mentorship, right? Giving everybody the fundamental understanding of how to start investing in multifamily real estate so that down the line, we can potentially work together. Uh, so I think in terms of defining my goals, I think that's where we're at, which is tricky because the market is in flux and it's hard to to set goals around buying real estate at the moment. Gotcha. And what about you personally? I mean, me personally, um, I mean, I'd like to I'd like to shoot under 80 this summer golfing <laughs> if we want to get outside of the business world. I mean, that's that's really it. Um, I mean, you know, I guess those are all my, I, my personal goals are business goals, right? They're all one and the same, right? I think all of those are personal, but, um, but outside of that, you know, I guess personally, like I host the podcast, I I'd love it to, I'd love to get it to an average of 15,000 downloads a month, you know, or as we were talking pre-show or kind of around 10 to 12, um, you know, and outside of that, I mean, not too much. I've already done a lot of traveling this year. Usually I got some goals around traveling, um, probably do another couple of weeks, you know, in another continent, at least by the end of the year. But um, but outside of that, I mean, I think a lot of the business ones are where I spend a lot of my time thinking about. That's awesome. And I want to talk, I want to go back to what we were talking about with the hiring you and your team, getting all of those high level people involved. in when you first started hiring, how do you start to get these positions filled out when you've just been doing it yourself or with a very small team or with partners how do you begin to really take leadership and what are your mantras? How did you put these applications out? It's That seems like a very daunting situation for somebody who hasn't done it before. Yeah, it's by far the hardest thing I've ever done in this business. Um, going from being a deal junkie, you know, guys just looking for deals, putting deals together, making some money to like trying to grow a business are, those are two entirely different skill sets. Um, and I struggle with it immensely. And like, this is something that I still struggle with now. I mean, I, like, I, I think the challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs is um, they have a vision of what their work day looks like, their work week looks like. They understand how much time they like to put in. They, you know, oftentimes are pretty intense, pretty demanding in terms of the people they work with. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, those are not good qualities for like a manager. <laughs> so, um, so for me, it's been, let's get educated on the fundamentals of this stuff. Let's, let's, you know, a lot of management one-on-one courses and books being read for me over the last 12 to 18 months. Like just how often do you do one-to-one meetings on a weekly basis? Like, like stuff that's like fundamentally, how do you manage? Um, step number two for me was starting on a small scale. So just treating virtual, um, you know, virtual help, virtual assistance as core parts of our team, right? Which I think some people forget that you got to do. Like I'm treating them as they're like local US based individuals, right? We got our weekly one to ones, we connect over zoom pretty regularly. Um, you know, they have a set work schedule, they have recurring tasks on a, on a weekly basis. We, I started systematizing the business in terms of recording myself doing everything that could be delegated, regardless of whether or not I think someone can handle it. I just started literally anytime I did anything for like six months, I just recorded it using loom 
um, which is a video recording software. And I just started storing all the links um, in a website called monday.com, which is what we use as our project management software. It's really like the back end for our business. Um, understanding that, yeah, maybe at some point I'll have to record myself doing this again because I didn't get it right the first time, but like really started to flex the muscle from a delegation standpoint. Um, and, you know, outside of that, I, I, I realized, and I made a couple of bad hires. Like I hired the wrong like acquisitions guy initially. I hired some, some, some of the wrong folks who just didn't do a good job. And it took me too long to, to get out of that relationship because I had nothing to compare it to. And I think that's what the hard thing is when you, and especially for me, cause I've never had a business partner, you know, I've never like partnered at the business level. It's just been me literally working by myself for six years until about a year ago. And, um, so I didn't know what to, what was reasonable for me to expect. So I spent a lot of time working with the wrong people. Cause I just assumed, I guess this is the level of performance that should be expected here. Um, and I, I had to realize like, you may have to work through a few people to find the right person because you have no reference frame. So for me, it's understanding that that's a dynamic, um, you know, acting quickly after we hire, spending a lot of time on the onboarding process, spending a lot of time on the hiring process and really trying to self-select people in the business that align with my personality type because everyone's reporting directly to me. So for me, I'm the complete opposite of a micromanager. Like I just want to give you a portion of the business. I want you to own it through and through. And then you reach out to me when you have some challenges. I don't want to be sitting over thinking about, oh, I wonder if they did that or if they did this that certain way. So I just paid up too. And that's the other thing too. Like I realized I'm not going to be the guy to train talent because I don't have the patience for that. And, um, and I'm, and I'm still just too busy in the business trying to put, you know, food on the table to, to have an, you know, a five week onboarding process. Right. So I need to hire, I need to self-select and hire people that can learn quickly that are high achievers that align with my personality type and how I manage. And, um, you know, and just that, that can absolutely produce and can be malleable because they were a small business and everybody's got to kind of get their hands in multiple different things. And that, and that's, you know, I'm just speaking from the cuff here, just kind of free flowing off my, off my brain, but that's a lot of the stuff that I've learned. Um, and it's been extraordinarily painful. It's, you know, the most costly mistakes I've made have been into, you know, hiring the wrong people, but, um, but it's critical for me. And at, and I, to be candid as well, um, I am, you know, we are paying hefty salaries like USB and I'm hired and I hired way too early. Most people that are at my level, they're like, they're not even remotely considering hiring. Like they're, they're like, maybe I'll get a VA, but that still feels like I'm spending a lot of money for me. I'm candidly okay. Making much less money myself, understanding that I'm building the framework of a business that has the ability to buy, um, you know, raise capital for and execute 500, a thousand units a year. And if you think about, all right, so let's think about who's doing that kind of volume of business. It's really rare that you find one individual person who's doing that and doing it well, um, you know, and doing it without just an immense amount of life stress or without some kind of help. So for me, I was like, I know that I'm going to need people to get to that end goal. So I'm just going to hire them a little bit sooner. Um, and that was just a tactical decision I made because I was also just found myself working way too much and my life was getting a little too out of balance. So I wanted to bring some of that stuff back to balance. So I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm basically replacing all of my income with, uh, you know, salaries of folks in the business. But if that means that we're able to build a bigger pyramid and that, the, and that the growth can become a little bit more hockey stick, then I'm fine with that. So I probably bounced around a million different places there, but that's kind of how I've thought about it over the last you know year or so. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. And, and you touched on it a little bit with, with bad hires, but maybe there's something more, uh, in the backstory with you, but was there ever a time 
where you were close to failure, you know, you were really hustling. What was a big, just a, a huge moment that you had to overcome that you got pretty close to it all falling apart, but you pulled it out, obviously. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I basically did go to zero a couple of years in the business. So, um, you know, I, I probably had a portfolio of like 12, 15 units or so at, at one point in time. Um, and then I decided I wanted to get into, you know, I went backwards. Usually most people go from flipping into multifamily. I went from small multifamily into flipping. Cause I was like, I need to, I need to make some quick cash to go buy multifamily. So bought a, a deal in New Hampshire as a duplex foreclosure, um, auction sale. I was going to take it and convert it into a single family home. Um, it was a massive reno that I, I never managed anything that big. It was like $175,000 renovation, which for me at the time was massive. I mean, it is just big for anybody, but at the time it was really big for me. And I had no construction management experience. And I just jumped into the frigging deep end. Like, like, let's do it. You know, I got it. It was, you know, crushed it on a few deals before that. I was like, Oh, I got this down, you know, just got a little cocky and a little careless and, uh, hired the wrong contractor. Just took me for an absolute ride. Second contractor I hired took me for another ride. I was in 18 months in, you know, just to a project that should have taken six to nine, um, you know, hard money at 12%. And I sold my entire portfolio to get out of that deal. I just had to sell it. I get, I need that money back, sold the next one, sold the next one. So I basically turned a 12 unit portfolio into a zero unit portfolio because of that deal. And I basically spent two years doing a bunch of shit for no reason. And I started at zero again. And that's literally what happened on that deal. Um, and along the way, I was incredibly stressed out because there was, there was no light at the end of the tunnel for me. Um, which is an interesting, which was an interesting dynamic of that time where I was like, I just don't see a way in which I get out of this without like, with it, with like, because, and it was really after the second contractor, like the first contractor did a bunch of the work incorrectly and then stole a bunch of materials. A guy who I had worked with on like probably 10 jobs at that point, he just went, he just went rogue on me. And then the second guy, um, corrected all of the other guys work also incorrectly. And I was just like, at the end of it, I'm like, you know, $125,000 into renovations that were useless. And I was like looking down the barrel of spending another hundred grand to do it all over again, or um, selling the property for basically what I owed on it, because it was like, you know, in the middle of construction. And I just didn't see a way out of it. And and the only way out of it at the time for me was, all right, I'm going to go find other deals, start assigning them, start flipping multifamily, because that's what I know. Well, I know how to do that. Like, I, I, I'm really good at that. Um, so I had to sell everything. I had to do, I had to do some stuff on the side to get in and out of that deal. I had to bring in some folks to, to really help bail me out of that project. I really understood construction. Um, so yeah, yeah. I thought I was, you know, I, I think if you're in this game long enough too, like you're going to have a deal that really tests you, you know, maybe you don't lose a bunch of money, but maybe you don't, maybe you make zero money and you dedicated 200, 500 hours at the course of a year to that deal. And you just, there's no money left at the end of the table. So it's going to happen, you know, and I think um, you just have to do nine great deals for every, you know, one shitty one. Yeah. And that's how I've thought about it. Right. Um, so, but it was an incredible learning lesson and I look back and it's irrelevant now, you know, it would have been nice to not have done it, but you know, Hey, it's now I now you know, learned countless things on that one for sure. Gotcha. No, that's great. And what is, and you talked about some of the resources, some of those books that you were reading uh, for management. Do you have, do you remember the titles of those books? What are some resources or uh, book recommendations that you have for people that are listening? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a really big, like I'm so pro pay to get the answers from someone who's been their guy. Um, so a course that I found to be incredibly helpful was a course called Invest in Your Leaders. 
um, which is by Cam Harold, the guy that wrote Vivid Vision. Um, I mean, he's wrote a bunch of books and he's he was the COO, COO, excuse me, of 1 800 God Junk, took it from like, I don't know, something like 10 million to 150 million or whatever. Some incredible operator of businesses, incredible manager, incredible, you know, culture setter, team builder, et cetera. Like, and for me, I had never worked in a, like, I'd never had a job, like in an office, <laughs> you know? So for me, I like, I literally didn't know the simplest stuff. Like, should you talk to people that are in your business every day? Like dumb, dumb stuff that other people are just like, I worked a job for a couple of years in a large company. And I kind of just, I've like, I've seen how it's supposed to go. Like, I didn't have any of that. So for me, that course, which was like seven, 800 bucks, like incredible ROI. It's like, just do these things this often and in this way. And that will put you ahead of 80% of the folks from a management standpoint. So that was incredibly impactful. And then I read some books around um, uh, the four disciplines of execution. I can't remember the author, but it's all about uh, 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 leading indicators and lagging indicators. And it's basically how to set goals around process, how to set goals around, you know, because if you set process oriented goals, and they're much easier to track instead of results oriented goals. And that was something that really helped in terms of like being able to track the success of everybody in the business. Um, and, you know, there were some other ones like, you know, how to be a great boss by Gina Wickman was good. Um, honestly, like for me, it was, I read like a lot of like communication related books because I, you know, like I do 70 hours a week trying to, trying to grow the real estate business. Like, and for me, like I'm very intense. I'm very, uh, I have a hard time uh, working with folks that are in that, and I don't expect anybody else to put in that kind of week or, you know, put in that kind of work for my business. It's not their business. You shouldn't expect that. So for me, it was like a lot of understanding how to motivate people, how to communicate with people, how to, you know, set the right expectations and all of that. But I think the the shortest answer I could give you is the invest in your leaders course was incredibly impactful for me. That's perfect. And can you talk two more questions? Can you talk a little bit more about the tools that you use every day, kind of what your tech stack looks like um, just for people that are looking for ways to expand their business or look into some other alternatives? Yeah. So on the direct to seller side of the business, we use ReSimply for basically everything, mail, uh, our dialing system, our CRM, um, all of that stuff. We use Reonomy as our data platform. Um, so monday.com is really the platform in which we've built our business that houses everything we do from like an asset management standpoint, houses everything we do from like a transaction checklist standpoint, houses everything we do from like a, a one-off project management standpoint, like, um, you know, Hey, we got to go build the website. We, we get into monday.com. We assign all the roles, to everybody on the team that's responsible for, you know, what they're responsible for. Um, and then it serves as like a, an informational hub. So we have our, you know, our knowledge base is what we call it, which is all of the videos on how to do all of these different things in our business. You can get in there, you can search tasks, you can just find a video on how to do it. So that's where all of that lives. Um, we use active campaign for our email marketing. Um, you know, what else? I mean, then we just live in drive, you know, like Google drive, I should say, right. That's where all of like the, all of our docs live. And then Gmail, you know, it's funny. We don't use like Slack. We don't use a lot of those messenger apps. Like we just, we just kind of slum it through Gmail because, um, a lot of what we do in this business requires deep work. So if you're, if you want to cold call, like you got to set aside three hours and not let anybody stop you from cold calling or else it's going to be really hard. So when you have Slack messages, like pinging you on a regular basis, it's harder to do that. Just as, um, you know, our director of operations, if he's in the flow, you know, doing some kind of financial analysis or working on an important project, like being regularly interact interrupted with notifications isn't helpful either. So, I mean, those are the, those are the big ones, uh, at least that come you know top of mind. No, that's perfect. Definitely oh, and Loom. Loom. Loom is, as I mentioned earlier, 
loom.com screen recording software is literally we i literally use it 30 times a day I, I i don't even know if that's a joke like i use it with internally i use i use it to send videos to investors to sellers to vendors like loom is incredible that's probably is, i can't believe i forgot that one is that kind of like an email like a video insert text insert type of thing for sending things out. I use bomb bomb on ours through our CRM. Yeah. Bomb bomb's good. If you're like prospecting Uh loom is, I mean, loom basically does a version of that. It's, it's very similar, um, but it's basically like the quickest and easiest way to just record your screen, record your face, show somebody how to do something, show somebody what you're seeing on your ends, you know, walk somebody through a task, et cetera, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I've used it only once or twice, but anyway, last question. I know you got to go here soon. What is one final piece of advice to fire up the listeners who are out there in the markets, in the trenches and get everybody fired up to go out, go out there and take down some deals? Absolutely. So, I mean, the big, the most important thing in this business, um, especially if you're starting and you're newer, you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta figure out how to find good deals. Like, it is by far the most important part of being in real estate is being able to consistently find discounted deals. And it is the most important skill set you can develop. It's the most important activity you can focus on. The only other one I would entertain as an argument to that is raising money because raising money is incredibly important as well. But everything else, the all the other stuff is noise. Um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna spend your time in this business doing anything, you should try and spend as much of it and sourcing deals as you can, whether that's talking to brokers, talking to other investors, talking to wholesalers, going direct to seller, um, creating content online that speaks to other folks so that you stay top of mind when people have deals, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that that's the biggest thing, right? Um, stop doing all of the other stuff that doesn't matter and start doing the stuff that does matter is maybe the simplified version of that. That's perfect. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. My name is Corey Mortensen, your host, and this was Axel Regnarsson. Axel, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today. Absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, I'm sure you'll throw all the info in the show notes too, like communicate, like, uh, like links and all that stuff. Feel free to reach out to anybody who's listening. You know, I'd love to chat about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Axel's got great social media, like we mentioned. And so we'll put those links in the show notes and descriptions. But anyway, thank you guys for listening. And until next time, this is the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Mm -hmm.